I think it's important that people are aware that, as you said, you know, all this um, lifestyle, you know, do not impact just exactly how you look, maybe. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will do that for that, but actually how you can preserve uh, your cognition or even your happiness, we could go that far, you know, to prevent, uh, you know, depression. Hi, my name is Dr. Rongan Chatterjee, medical doctor, author of The Four Pillar Plan and television presenter. I believe that all of us have the ability to feel better than we currently do, but getting healthy has become far too complicated. With this podcast, I aim to simplify it. I'm going to be having conversations with some of the most interesting and exciting people both within as well as outside the health space to hopefully inspire you as well as empower you with simple tips that you can put into practice immediately to transform the way that you feel. I believe that when we are healthier, we are happier because when we feel better, we live more. Hello and welcome to episode 44 of my Feel Better, Live More podcast. My name is Rongan Chatterjee and I am your host. Now, as a practicing doctor, low energy is one of the commonest complaints that I see in my practice. For that reason, I have created a free six-part video series to help you increase your energy so that you can get more out of life. If you would like to watch these videos, you can sign up to receive them at drchatterjee.com forward slash energy. Today's episode is a fascinating conversation with one of the world's leading brain health scientists, Dr. Santrine Touré. Dr. Touré is head of the Neurogenesis and Mental Health Laboratory at King's College London. She's also editor for the journal Nutrition and Healthy Aging and associate editor for the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Her research lab is exploring the various mechanisms that control the production of new nerve cells in the adult brain and how this impacts our mood and our memory. Sandrine's research is incredible, and in today's podcast, she gives us a masterclass in brain health. We discuss what exact lifestyle factors we can engage in to promote the growth of new nerve cells in our brain. We cover a wide variety of areas, including diet, sleep, physical activity, as well as how having sex can impact this process. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm sure that you will too. Before we get started, I do need to give a very quick shout out to our sponsors, who are essential in order for me to be able to put out weekly podcast episodes like this one. Athletic Greens continue their support of my podcast. There's no question that I prefer people to get all of their nutrition from their foods, but these days, for some of us, it's not always possible. Athletic Greens is one of the most nutrient-dense whole food supplements that I have come across and contains vitamins, minerals, prebiotics, and digestive enzymes. If you are looking to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. For listeners of this podcast, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you will be able to access a special offer where you get a free travel pack box containing 20 servings of Athletic Greens, which is worth around £70 with your first order. You can check this out at athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Now, on to today's conversation. So, Sandrine, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast today. Uh, my pleasure. So, I'm, I'm running a bit late, but we managed to get here, get everything set up. And, you know, I first came across you, I think, with your TED Talk, which is doing phenomenally well. It's got over 6 million views. And you talk about something called neurogenesis. Now, I wonder if you might explain what neurogenesis is for me, but more importantly, for my listeners. Yeah, of course. Um, so neurogenesis, by definition, is a production or the birth of new neurons. And what, um, what has been found is that obviously as, you know, uh, we are developing, there is a lot of new neurons that are being generated in the brain uh, of the fetus. And then as we are born, it was thought that this production of new neurons would stop. So basically, the brain is formed, and this is it. Nothing, you know, will happen anymore. Uh, 
as the worst to come is actually we are going to, you know, uh, lose some neurons, but then no more new neurons will be made. And then it was then discovered in the mid-60s by Altman and Das that in a rat brain, actually, they did detect neurogenesis in the adult brain, but in a very restricted area, which is called uh, the hippocampus. Wow. I think people have heard of the hippocampus. It's, it's commonly known as the memory center of the brain. It's probably a little bit overly simplistic, I imagine, and maybe you can shed some light on that. Um, but I just want to sort of touch on something you just mentioned, which is when I was at medical school, and I went to medical school between 1995 and 2001, I'm almost certain that we were taught that once the brain has stopped developing, no new, no new nerve cells or, or neurons can be produced that was it. It was static. And, and what you're saying and what your research is showing is this may not be the case. Yeah, that, that's correct. So I, I believe that there are still many places, many medical schools that indeed, you know, just give this simplistic view that once the brain has finished developing, we can't make new neurons. And this is a big statement from Carl, so one of our peer and, and, and father of neuroscience that says, you know, everything may die, nothing may be regenerated. But... Um, you know, unfortunately, it was proven wrong. Uh, and then this study I mentioned from Altman and Daz, who were at the MIT um, in the US, where they showed that, no, look, in this rat brain, there is there are new neurons that are produced in the hippocampus. But their study was pretty much ignored, so that's probably why, you know, that didn't take up. Uh, but in the field, we have to acknowledge them because they, they were the first one, you know, publishing a paper showing that. And, and, then, and that was in the 1960s? Yeah, in the 60s, wow. exactly. And then in the 1990s, where we developed new tools, new biological tools, where we can say, you know, uh, we can basically tag stem cells. And if these stem cells are becoming neurons, then we will be able to detect them. And then using this new technique, then loads of people then say, no, this is true. There is new neurons born in the adult brain of, uh, of mice and rats. Um, but what, is, what was very interesting is that it was not everywhere all over the brain, these new neurons are generating in the adult mammalian brain only in the hippocampus and in the rodent specifically as well in the olfactory bulb, so for the sense of smell. Uh, in the human brain, we know it's happening in the hippocampus only. It doesn't seem to be happening in the olfactory bulb, which a little bit maybe makes sense because we don't use our olfactory senses as much as, as rodents. Uh, but it is there. It is now shown uh, quite robustly that neurogenesis is happening in the human brain, in the adult human brain, but very specifically in this maybe privileged area, which is the hippocampus. Yeah, I mean, super interesting stuff. I mean, really... In many ways, a paradigm shift. It's, you know, from, from once our brain is developed and that's it, we've got all the neurons and nerve cells that we are going to have. All we can possibly hope for is to slow down the race of decline. What this research is showing us that, hey, there might be things that we can do to help encourage the growth of new nerve cells, which is, you know, which is really empowering, actually. And we'll get to that in this conversation for sure. But you mentioned in rodents that... They also get neurogenesis in the olfactory bulb. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure this is related or not, but we know that in humans, when we lose our sense of smell, it can be an early sign of brain dysfunction or an early sign that we're going to develop dementia. Is there any relation there at all, do you think? So uh, probably in animal model of Alzheimer's disease, indeed it is you know, shown as you rightly said that, you know, they lose their sense of self early. And this mimic what we see as well in the patient. Uh, but we don't think that this has a relation with neurogenesis because it seems that in the human brain, even if we have neurogenesis it's to undetectable level. So it might be that we have a little bit, but it's not something that we can see or we can modulate to a great extent as opposed to, to the rodent. So it's probably via different mechanism or it's an, you know, unrelated um, uh, instance that where you know patients indeed uh, lose a sense of smell. This is not because they are losing newborn neurons. They they might be basically losing olfactory neurons, but it's not that they cannot make new ones. The reason they are losing the sense of smell. Yeah. So we think it's it is something that's probably separated. Yeah. Now, your research is showing that we are able to grow new neurons um, in the hippocampus. Can we do that in any other parts of the brain? 
So no, I mean, from, so from the human perspective, it seems to be very restricted to the hippocampus. But it's potentially a small area, um, not too far, not to go into big detail, but it's potentially a small area not too far from the hippocampus where maybe there is neurogenesis, but it has to be confirmed by further data. So there's one group that has shown, you know, maybe this is happening here, and maybe these neurons are going to migrate to the striatum where we have dopaminergic neurons, but would like a little bit more, more studies about that. Um, and we don't know too much yet about this area. What we know is that what's happening in the hippocampus that we can make, you know, approximately, or it's an estimate 700 new neurons in the hippocampus, uh, on each hippocampus per day, which you can say is quite little compared to, you know, the billions we have. But they have a specific function, even though with these small numbers, they can have a specific function. So what is the function of the hippocampus? So the hippocampus as a whole, independent of whether, you know, you have new neurons produced as an adult or not, as you said rightly at the start, is that it's important for learning and memory, but also... so. You know, the hippocampus, the ventral part of the hippocampus is important as well for mood and emotion. So the dorsal part, the upper part would be important for learning and memory and the dorsal part for mood and emotion. So does that mean then that if we can engage in practices and, and or, or we can sort of apply interventions that help neurogenesis in the hippocampus, then potentially we might be able to impact our own learning, memory, mood and emotions? Yeah, correctly. So we have a lot of... Um, That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it is. It is quite incredible. I mean, we know, so basically, the basic experiment, you know, that a scientist would do to see that, okay, what is the functionality of these new neurons? What are they for? So basically, what you do is that let's block the process of neurogenesis in an animal model, in, in mice. We block it. And then we see, can this mice still be, will this mice still be able to learn? And then what we could see is that if you block neurogenesis, then the mice lose certain abilities, specific ability of learning and memory, specifically spatial learning. So how to uh, orientate yourself uh, in a space and find your way. So this, if you block neurogenesis, then you block the spatial learning ability. And, um, and you block as well the retrieval of these memories. So this is one aspect that was shown, you know, quite you know, probably like 15, 20 years ago. And then more recently, what we have shown as well is that uh, these new neurons, if you block them, you prevent pattern separation. And pattern separation is the ability to distinguish between very similar memories. So, for example, um, well, this morning you came, you were looking for uh, your batteries or uh, the memory card, and you know you have them in the bag and probably use it a lot, but maybe, you know, once you put it, you know, in the front pocket, and then some days you put it in the middle pocket, and sometimes yeah. on the side pocket. So, the ability to remember that, you know, it's something very similar. So the pattern separation is, is distinguishing because between very similar memories. So now you have to decide, did I put it in the front pocket or in the back pocket? Yeah. So it's a spatial orientation of similar memory or like where you are going to um, put your you know, travel card when you come home at night, you know, on the side table, on the main table. So this kind of spatial, very similar memory. So these new neurons are important for that. What's interesting about that is you're saying when you block neurogenesis, so let's say we've got, you know, X amount of neurons in our hippocampus, and, and if we assume that they're functioning well, mm -hmm. neurogenesis is the formation or, or the, the creation of new nerve cells. Is that fair to say? Yes, yeah, absolutely. So you're blocking the creation of new nerve cells, and that is already having an impact on people's ability to learn and their memory. Yes. So... That makes you think, so do the existing nerve cells almost require neurogenesis to actually, you know, do their job? You know, is neurogenesis, because those cells are still there, right? Yet blocking neurogenesis is affecting its ability to function. So to me, it seems as though there, there may be some 
I don't know, some synergistic benefit of them and they're both happening. Absolutely. I mean, I, I was not expecting to go into so much detail, <laughs> but, but you are exactly on to what we think is happening because how can so few cells have such a big impact? Well, the only way they can do that is because they are connected with the, big, the rest of the circuitry. Wow. So it's not that you make new nerve cells and they are just hanging around loosely. No, when they are born, they are going to have immediately very from very early on they are going to have an important role because they are more excitable so these young cells are more excitable than the old one so this is one of the reasons that they have this specific role but also as they mature so they are going to survive and mature they are going to connect to the rest of the circuitry of the hippocampus and the rest of the brain so this is why we think they have you know so little cells can have a big impact uh, and they are very important indeed um to have a functional, you know, uh, spatial memory or pattern separation, or even have an impact uh, on mood uh, and emotion. This is incredible, really. The, the more you learn about the human body, the more you find how very few things work in isolation. And um, obviously, scientists like to isolate things so they can study what they're doing, but you're finding you know, as in many fields as though those new nerve cells are actually connected to the other nerve cells and they're connected to other functions of the brain. And it, it never ceases to amaze me how, how interconnected the body is. What can, you know, what, what helps to promote neurogenesis and what helps to, what, what's the opposite, sort of, you know, decline it or mm -hmm, switch mm -hmm. it off yeah, you know yeah, what, yeah. what 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 are mm -hmm. the good things basically yeah. and what are the bad things so um so as you said you know the brain is in studying the brain is in isolation like many of us do exactly to refine specific mechanisms cellular and molecular mechanism I think at this time, and this is a big trend where people are studying the mind and body, you know, alignment. And neurogenesis is a perfect example to, to illustrate that, that, uh, you know, what you do every day actually impacts the production of these new neurons. So we can start uh, with the bad things, maybe, uh, you know, like uh, we know that uh, stress is going to decrease uh, the number of new neuron produced in the hippocampus. And then as a consequence, then it will induce potentially, you know, symptom of, of, uh, of depression or, you know, uh, or similar symptom of uh, depression when we induce stress, decrease neurogenesis, and then look at the behavior of the animal after. So this is, this is one where, you know, this, is, this has a big impact. If you stress um, uh, an, a, a mice, for example, even if it's just chronic mild stress, so little stress, but every day, okay. then we will decrease neurogenesis and then we will see... Uh, similar behavior to what human would describe as as depression so this is one where i mean this is i mean you're showing a direct mechanism by which stress can impact mental health by, by which stress can yeah. affect our ability to remember things it's a direct mm -hmm. mechanism there isn't it because yeah. there's mm -hmm. lots of theories behind this and um you know I've, I've locked myself away for the last few months writing a new book on stress and you know when I, I cover this a little bit in the book, and I also cover this when I'm teaching doctors on our prescribing lifestyle medicine course, so that it's a little, a little bit of stress can be a good thing. Yes. A little bit yep. of cortisol can help your brain to function exactly. better. Yes. But you just mentioned that. The chronic mild stress That's is where the bad one. Is. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the chronic mild stress is the one that we know is going to decrease neurogenesis. Do you see that, you know, as a GP, I'm seeing lots of people now in... At a much earlier age, maybe sometimes in their 40s, coming to talk to me that they just can't quite remember as well as they used to. And I can't help but think that, you know, the way we're living our lifestyles now, um, you know, where we have very little downtime, we're constantly filling our brains with new information. We're, you know, we're waking up, we're straight onto our phones and our emails. We're, you know, we're standing in a queue in a coffee shop and instead of just taking it in, we're, we're trying to catch up with everything. I, I just wonder how much of this might be impacting neurogenesis, mm -hmm. which might be causing, you know, yeah. digital induced early memory loss, for want of a better term. Yeah. 
No, no, that's a good point. I mean, we, we can't say for sure because, I mean, what we have to say is that we can't measure uh, live neurogenesis in human. We can only do postmortem studies or we can use proxy uh, as we do in the lab. So it's difficult to say, you know, to set up an sure. experiment and say, okay, we have a group of people, you know, uh, being constantly on their phone, you know, being stressed. And then we have other people that maybe, you know, take it easier and say, for sure, we have a decreased neurogenesis. But, you know, the, the clinical outcome is there, you're right. And then our most study showing that, you know, chronic mild stress induces a decreased neurogenesis. When we link both, you could clearly argue that potentially neurogenesis is a mechanism by which this chronic mild stress is going to induce, uh, you know, maybe a slight um, memory decline or cognitive uh, decline. And there is a strong link in, you know, uh, mood and emotion and memory performance. So in, in patients with depression, it's, it's quite new, but clinicians never looked before. But actually, these patients are not just depressed. They also complain uh, with uh, some memory loss or that they are not as sharp as, as they used to be. So there's a clear link between there. And in the lab, we do think, and not only me, but the rest of researchers on neurogenesis, thinks that there's a strong link on cognition and mood. And neurogenesis is really where everything is happening uh, as an adult in the hippocampus. Yeah, it, it really is incredible. Um, so, you know, stress, it, I mean, it's really quite striking what you're saying, that chronic, even a little bit of chronic daily stress might be enough to impair neurogenesis, which is, as you've already explained, is so important for so many functions of our brain. So that's one thing we need to be careful mm -hmm. of. What else impacts neurogenesis? So, I mean, when uh, nothing we can do much about it, but as we get older, we still have neurogenesis, but it will go down, sure. basically. So, as, as you know, um, so this is uh, what has been observed as well in rodent. This is what, uh, as well, we uh, we estimate in human. As we get older, we have a lower level of neurogenesis. So, it, it is still happening, and you probably could, you can still stimulate it and increase it, but, you know, naturally, it will go down, which might explain why, as we get older, maybe our pattern separation is not that good. And this has been shown by many people around the world where you, you have pattern separation tasks where you ask, you know, people to recognize, is this a new object, an old object, or have you seen before? So this is how we can, you know... Uh, uh, measure that, we can see that with age, naturally, people are not as good uh, with that. And then, because obviously the population is very heterogeneous as you get older, young people will perform really well, whatever is their background or their education or their lifestyle, like if they exercise or eat, whatever, they will perform really well. But as you get older, this is where you see the difference. So where you see that you have older people who perform as good as young people, and then you look back at their lifestyle, you say, well, these are the ones exercising, these are the ones eating well, and or have higher level of education. Um, and then you have people that perform as the average old, and then you have the old, old that perform really much worse than they should be. Um, so age is a big, is a big, uh, has a big, you know, impact on neurogenesis. So I, I guess the question then is, well, we're going to reduce our rate of neurogenesis as we get older, yes. because that's what happens to all mm -hmm. of us. So yeah. is there anything we can do to slow that down? So what we know from uh, from quite a few studies, so some of my colleagues in the US, so actually my, my mentor, Gage, um, from the uh, Salk Institute, Professor Gage, um, was the first one uh, to show that you can modulate neurogenesis uh, by the environment. So it is something that you can change. Uh, and the first experiment we did was actually showing that running in mice will increase neurogenesis. So you have these beautiful studies where you show that if you leave a running wheel in a mouse cage, you know, just free to access, the mice actually love to run, so they will start running and you have your control mice where they, you know, they will have a cage without a running wheel. And then when you look at their neurogenesis after, you have an increase of 30%. 30%. So yeah, this is quite huge. And then what you see is that you can do that in the young animal, but then as the animal gets older, you know, you can increase it further. So basically, you know, it's more efficient if you have, you know, if you have a lower neurogenesis, running will increase it even more than if you have already a good neurogenesis. So running exercise seems to be a good 
a good uh, trigger of increasing neurogenesis. So, so running, uh, lowering stress levels would yes, clearly be a good absolutely, thing. absolutely, yeah. Um, I think on your TED talk, you mentioned sleep as well. Is that right? Yeah, so sleep is an important one um, where um, there are quite a few studies there that really nicely aligned that, you know, if you sleep deprive uh, mice, you will have a massive decrease uh, in neurogenesis. And it's not just small, you will have a big decrease maybe of 50%. So, and here we are talking about not maybe massively sleep depriving, so not depriving them from sleeping at all, but disturbing their sleep, maybe even just fragmenting their sleep uh, will decrease neurogenesis. So there is a big, uh, there is a big impact uh, of sleep deprivation on neurogenesis. Yeah. I mean, it's, do you know what's fascinating for me, Sandrine, is that, you know, I'm very keen to promote that it's important we look after our lifestyles and that, you know, I'm, in my years of practice, I've seen um, the four, what I consider to be the four of the most important areas that have the most impact on our health, but also we've got a fair degree of control over it's being food, movement, but equally important sleep and relaxation. And what's incredible is that you're one of the, you know, arguably the UK's leading researcher, but certainly one of the world's leading researchers in in this field. And it looks as though that those lifestyle factors that I talk about are not just relevant for our physical health and, you know, whether we've you know, whether we maintain a healthy weight or not, but potentially are directly impacting our hippocampus and our ability to create new nerve cells. It's, it's amazing because I, I think people often feel that, oh yeah, good diet, a bit of exercise, sleep. Yeah, you know, these things are important, but you know, where's, where's the hard science? Where's, where's, you know, it's, it's almost like too obvious, but it, it really helps show that your research is, is, is showing that these things are so important for human beings to maintain health as we get older. Mm-hmm. I, I find it remarkable. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's important that people are aware that, as you said, you know, all this um, lifestyle, you know, do not impact just exactly how you look, maybe. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will do that for that, but actually how you can preserve uh, your cognition or even your happiness, we could go that far, you know, to prevent, uh, you know, depression. Um, so I think the, the hard science from our lab, you know, I mean, obviously this is all road on study where you are going to give a bad diet to a mice, high fat, high saturated fat diet, and then you will decrease their neurogenesis. I mean, you know, these are, you know, the same mice. You cannot argue that, you know, because when you look at epidemiological study where you see that all oh, people who are doing the Mediterranean diet versus another diet are living uh, longer, better. They have a lower uh, onset of Alzheimer's disease. They stay cognitively healthy longer. So we have all this nice data that already should convince the people, right? Sure. But on top of that, if you just give, you know, a Mediterranean diet like, you know, to a mice versus something which is really high fat, then you will, you know, forget even about the behavior, but we'll see the same behavior. They will be, you know, cognitively sharper if they follow a good diet as opposed to the high fat diet. But then if we look at their brain, you physically see uh, that they have less of this newborn neuron that are made when they eat a high fat diet. So really that's, you know, that's quite convincing. No one will argue, well, it's because maybe the people doing the Mediterranean diet are living next to the seaside and they are just happier. And I said, yeah, I, you know, it might be a compound that, you know, add on to that. Uh, But if you look at the lab, you know, we have hard data showing that, look, these mice are in the same cage. This is super controlled studies. We just changed the diet. We even have the same genetic background. We are not even talking about, you know, different genetic background and some people are luckier than others. Here, same genetic background. We just changed the diet and then we can modulate the production of these new neurons. Yeah, I mean, that's incredible that diet directly will affect neurogenesis. Mm-hmm. I know um, a lot of people listening to this will, will want clarification on the fact that, you know, when, when we're, and obviously you are a researcher in the field, but my understanding of uh, when we're feeding uh, rats and rodents high-fat diets, what we're talking about is a, is a chow mixture that's sort of high-fat and high in sugar, high in sucrose, yes. is that right? So, so it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a sort of very in many ways, reflective of um, the Western diet in, in many ways. Unfortunately, yes. As opposed to, let's say, somebody who was eating a Mediterranean diet, which is rich in 
um, avocados and olives and, and nuts and things which are also high in fat. I, I just think we should, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I, I'm keen to clarify that yes, it's a, absolutely. A, a toxic high fat and high sugar yes. diet yes, yes. you're talking about in the lab. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. In the lab, it's saturated, yeah. uh, you know, uh, fat as opposed to, you know, uh, other type of fat. But is, it, is it with sugar yeah. as well? I... So it depends. There are different type of experiments. Some people just focus on the high fat diet. Some people actually have done high sugar, which is equally bad. Right. Um, uh, and there are some mix where you say we call it the cafeteria diet for the rat, which is, you know, high fat, high sugar, which is, you know, equally worse. Um, but what, what we have tried to do is that, you know, to and what we are doing now uh, at the moment with a big European consortium, so working with people in Spain, France, Holland, Austria, Germany, uh, all together, is um, trying to say, okay, we have these animal studies, which people say, well, how does it relate to me? Although, yes, I'm convinced that, you know, in isolation, that works. So, you know, potentially diet has an impact. But how you know, are you sure it is the same in humans? So what we are doing now is that, because I told you we can't measure neurogenesis in living human, so we are trying to find proxy. So how could we do that? And what we are doing is that we have some um, people uh, all over Europe who are uh, following um, like a Mediterranean-like diet, so high in uh, olive oil, uh, fish, vegetables, uh, colorful you know, uh, fruits, um, and then, uh, and then we have uh, people that you know eat a more you know Western diet. You know, maybe not 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 so much of this uh, fish intake and vegetables. And then they have been followed already for fifteen years, uh, and they were recruited when they were probably around their fifties, and we, they were followed uh, by some of our clinicians. And what we do is that we measure their cognitive abilities. So we see that some. Uh, you know, stay stable with their cognition, and some will uh, so show basically a slope. They will have a slow cognitive decline, which is you know sometimes average. So what has been shown already is that the people with the Mediterranean diet, you know, maintain their cognition uh, better than the people who follow more Western diet. So that was not. But what we wanted now to validate in the lab is that we take the the blood of these people. And what we do, we have developed an essay where we have uh, a cell line, which is a, a cell line of human apocampal stem cells. And then we put uh, the blood of these people on the cells. So it's their blood. Uh, and we can, you know, and we know all about these people. We know their genetic background. We know what they ate. Uh, and we know what are their cognitive scores. And now we are uh, trying to see is that, you know, does their cognition and diet correlate with how much their blood is going to induce neurogenesis? So I agree this is not for sure what's happening in their brain, but by taking their blood, put it on stem cells that can make neurons or not, and we measure the percentage of these new neurons, then we'll be able to to validate this rodent study in a human population. So we already have some preliminary data in an, from a, another study we run uh, here um, in the UK where we have people who do intermittent fasting, which you know we show that it improves their pattern separation. And if we take their blood on the cells, we already know that it is promoting uh, neurogenesis. So, so this this the sort of work you're doing on yes. humans now mm-hmm. is suggesting that intermittent fasting may well promote neurogenesis. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. this we had shown already in mice, but now we wanted to show what's in happening humans, in humans. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So and, and can I, may I ask what yeah. you know? What was the type of intermittent fasting? Is that you know what what were you actually you know because intermittent fasting yeah. can be caught so, so many much. things these days yeah, yeah, what yeah. were you guys actually doing so what we wanted to compare what was interesting is that in our mouse study we did compare calorie restriction so decreasing the calorie intake of the mice let's say of 20 percent versus intermittent fasting where we gave food every other day to the mice every other day every so- other day it was very strict for the mice uh, now for our human but what we could see is that either calorie restriction or intermittent fasting um, had um, a good effect on certain readout, but only intermittent fasting was improving neurogenesis in the mice, not the calorie restriction. It was very interesting. So then we wanted to see in human what was happening. So we had a group doing calorie restriction and a group doing intermittent fasting. So and for the human population, the intermittent fasting was actually like the five-two diet. So meaning eating five days normally and only two days they would eat six hundred uh, kilocalories. 
So like, you know, like uh, three tiny small meals, like, you know, the equivalent of three small cereal bar, but, you know, in a balance, sure. in a balanced way with protein and carbs and so on. Um, and then what we could see is that Contrary to our hypothesis, because this is science, we thought, oh yeah, surely we will see, you know, a difference only to the people doing intermittent fasting, because that's what we saw in rodent. But no, in humans, the calorie restriction, you know, of, you know, uh, every day, so basically every day the people ate a little bit less, had a similar effect than intermittent fasting. So we did see that both improved their pattern separation. And then both as well had in their blood an increased level of, uh, we call it the longevity hormone, CLOTO. So both calorie restriction of like 20 to 30% and the intermittent fasting, so eating two days a week, much less, so half or maybe a third less what you would eat every day, had a positive effect um, in the human population. Whereas in mice, we only saw a good effect of intermittent fasting. Yeah, it's fascinating, really fascinating. You know, what... what, what what excites me is that it's, well, you know, I talked to a lot of different researchers on, on this podcast. Um, I spoke to um, Professor Sachin Panda from... Oh, yeah. So Salt Institute. Yeah, yeah. We, had, we had a phenomenal conversation yeah, about yeah. his research on time-restricted eating. Mm -hmm. And he was showing, again, he, like you, started off with rat studies and they're now moving over to trying to replicate this in humans. Mm -hmm. And it's remarkable the sort of benefits that they are showing, whether it be improved blood sugar control... Uh, improved immune system function, uh, losing weight, maybe um, increased endurance for athletes. It, it, you know, it's uncanny that how many different researchers are saying a very similar thing, which is, I think, I think it's safe to say we're not designed to eat food all the time from the minute we wake up to the minute we go to sleep, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And it doesn't matter what research you talk to about what function in the body they're looking for, reducing how much we eat and having sort of some set periods of time with either low calorie intake or not eating seems to have multiple benefits on the body. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're right. There are a load of study. There's one of the leader, leading researchher as well is Matt uh, Metzen was the first one trying to, to promote exactly this concept of intermittent fasting or energy restriction or uh, indeed having, you know, like a certain amount of time in between meals as opposed just to calorie restriction. Yeah, and, and, one, and one of the things I recommend people to do um, based upon the research that I've read and what I've seen in my practice is, you know, 12 hours in every 24 hours where we don't eat, I, I think is... I'm sure you can get more benefit if you go more aggressive than that. But I think that's, you know, eating for all your food within 12 hours each day seems like a reasonable, uh, achievable recommendation yeah. for most of us. Absolutely. And um, yeah, yeah. sorry, you were saying about this this research. No, no, no. I was saying, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think in our, in our trial, that's what we did when the patient, the participant were under the intermittent fasting diet, we were telling them, please eat your 600 kilocalorie within, you know, a certain time so that you can be at least 16 hours. We were asking them 16 hours without eating, so twice, twice a week which is not a big ask, to be honest. No. Uh, it's quite doable. And then again, if you look back at rodent studies, and this is an interesting conclusion that you, know, you can take, is that, for example, in animal model of Alzheimer's disease, not just one animal model of Alzheimer's disease, but plenty, if you put these mice under calorie restriction, and the way they do in animal research, often they just do intermittent fasting, so they leave them indeed uh, you know, at least probably 16 to 20 hours without food, is that you could cure Alzheimer's disease just by putting this animal under intermittent fasting. Wow. And it's just that, you know, I mean, that, that would be incredible. So the idea is that people are not so keen on, you know, the idea of intermittent fasting. And, and then you understand that. So, you know, what could you do? What can you find? I mean, it would be so easy to tell people, you know, be reasonable and, you know, please go you know, twice, twice, twice a week, you know, uh, reduce your food intake uh, in, in content and in, you know, restricted in time, you know, will increase definitely neurogenesis, that's for sure, but has a lot more benefit. 
So now, are people ready to do that? It's difficult. So that's why in the lab, we are trying to understand the molecular mechanism sure. that's behind it. So we are really trying to say, now we have our study where people go under intermittent fasting. They do better at memory tasks. They have increased this longevity hormone cloto, you know, so basically what we are trying to understand is that how does this happen? How does this work? Um, so that, you know, we can refine the pathways where we have something um, to yeah. play with. Yeah, it's, it's incredible, isn't it? So, you know, you're saying to avoid one of the, the, the sort of typical Western diets, the sort of high fat, high sugar combo diet that we, we often see mm -hmm. in the West. Um, have periods of time where we are reducing our calorie intake or do some sort of time-restricted eating yeah. may be beneficial for neurogenesis. Yeah. Are there particular foods that you've found that are really helpful for neurogenesis? Uh, yeah, so not just my lab. Uh, there are plenty of other labs that have shown, for example, um, uh, flavonoids, which are contained um, in uh, fruits with dark skin, well, like blueberries, or um, oh, yeah, we have a picture, picture of there blueberry the there, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, or even strawberries. So, lots of you know, uh, dark skin fruit, you know, uh, grapes uh, will have uh, high flavonoid contents, and we know that yeah, flavonoid will increase neurogenesis. And there are studies in human where. Uh, by colleague um, in a Reading University, not too far from here, uh, where they gave actually blueberry juice to participants and uh, they show that it improves their memory and it improves the blood flow to the brain. So it might be one way, you know, improving blood flow. So for example, this flavonoid improves blood flow and potentially if you have improved blood flow because the hippocampus is nicely, nicely vascularized, um, you know, you have more factors that reach this area that might stimulate the production of, of new neurons. But, I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? You're saying that blueberry juice yes, yes. Mm -hmm. can increase blood flow yeah. in the brain. Yeah, that's nicely shown uh, by my Jeremy Spencer in radio. Uh, I think this just yeah. goes to show how much we need to expand out the conversation on yeah, food. It's, it's so much more than... You know, just energy for the body. It's it's information. It's it's um, you know, blood flow to the brain. Incredible. And the, is that obviously blueberries contain flavonoids, but so yeah. does I think dark chocolate does as well. Yeah, dark chocolate as well has flavonoids. Although because I got this question as so many times. So once I did the calculation, <laughs> how much chocolate do you need to eat to have to increase your blood flow? Let's say it would be too much. It would be too much. <laughs> then you would have a huge high fat content or you would have to eat like so bitter chocolate, like 100% chocolate. I don't know if you had tried already. It's extremely bitter and you would need to eat probably 400 grams of that oh, wow. so a high calorie intake so probably blueberry might be, might be, might be the best way although some people better. might be hearing this again oh yeah. i fancy the challenge of 400 yeah, yeah, grams yeah. a day yeah. um, but, much. But, but isn't that interesting that that sort of reminds me a little bit about some of the studies on wine and resveratrol mm -hmm. because yes. mm -hmm. um and, and again i'd love to know what happens with resveratrol on neurogenesis but mm -hmm. certainly some of the studies i've read about the you know the reported beneficial effects of red wine and, and trying to trying to tie that out to resveratrol, they're sort of suggesting that actually the amount of red wine you would have to drink to get the amount of resveratrol that the studies are showing is, you know, quite a remarkable amount. Um, so, you know, I guess I guess that leads on to the yeah. question: What does alcohol do to neurogenesis? So, alcohol itself. So, if you you know, if you just use pure ethanol on on uh, on cells, basically, or if you do an in vitro experiment, let's you know, we can leave rodents you know, away, poor guys, uh, a little <laughs> bit. But if we take human cells in a dish, human apocampal cells that can make new neurons or not, and then you add, you will add ethanol, basically you will kill it. Uh, but then if you had some resveratrol, you know, that mediates, you know, uh, the cell death, let's say. So, you know, uh, so resveratrol will have an impact indeed. Uh, and as you said, you know, the amount of resveratrol you would proportionally, proportionally need to drink from wine would be huge. Uh, so I think it, the conclusion of, you know, this discussion is, is really just about balance. You know, maybe sure. you don't eat 400 grams of chocolate and, and drink 10 liters of wine, but, you know, maybe eat a little less. We'll have, you know, eating 30% calorie intake less or do intermittent fasting will have the same effect 
perfect, you know, as that. But if you want to do it really nicely, you know, eat a little bit of, you know, um, you know, fruit. Uh, yeah, red wine, if you like, you know, uh, wine is, yeah. is better than uh, white wine. That's for sure, because of the skin of the grape is there. And the skin of the grape is the one containing the resveratrol. So you will have no resveratrol in white wine, for example. Okay, that's interesting. So it's only... Um, in the red wine because of of the skins. And where were you born, Sandri, can I ask? Oh, in Burgundy. In Burgundy. <laughs> so I'm not promoting so Burgundy is, wine. Is there any... Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I'm just being... Uh, I'm just saying... I wonder yeah, if there's yeah, any, any sort of... Um, cultural bias creeping in here so the recommendation of, mm. of red wine probably well, not we have beautiful white wine in burgundy actually Do you? <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah and red wine as well but to be fair okay uh what i can say now so that i'm not you know uh being told i'm biased is that i, I might people, be teasing by no, the no, way no. <laughs> but people have measured the level of resveratrol in different red wines uh, and Burgundy wine are not the one with the highest level of resveratrol. Actually, Bordeaux wine have a higher level of resveratrol compared to Burgundy wine. We don't know exactly why, uh, because resveratrol is produced as a defense mechanism, um, uh, you know, with, with fungus. By, yeah. by the grape so it is um you know it could be it's it's a question of climate and and probably of uh, the strain of the grape as well wow. so it's a mix but yeah so Bordeaux wine has a little bit more resveratrol about burgundy wine it, it hurts me to say that but it's a reality <laughs> but it's good yeah, to know yeah. that's a good, yeah, 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 that's a yeah. good yeah. tip for people um what about omega-3s which we hear a lot about in the context of brain health yeah so omega-3 fatty acid there are a lot of study on that showing that how omega-3 fatty acids are are, you know, in rodent models that are good for cognition. And especially there are loads of studies uh, that have shown that they are also uh, protecting uh, for depression. And there are even some patient data uh, where they did a clinical trial where uh, they supplement the diet of the patient, not directly by fish, by supplements, so DHA and EPA. And uh, one milligram of it, so which is what you probably commonly find, you know, in, uh, in health stores. And then they show that it had a comparable effect uh, to uh, Prozac for some patient. Wow. So this study, and, that, and that's a supplement. That's as a supplement. Yeah. So this study was quite impressive, but we have to take it very carefully because, you know, the severity of the depression of the patient in this study maybe was quite low and it might not be relevant to, you know, all the patients sure. and people shouldn't stop taking antidepressant and take, you know, omega-3 fatty acid supplement. Uh, in, but what people have to be aware of is that when you buy your supplement, you know, watch the label because you want EPA and DHA. You don't want the other like ALA, uh, which are, you know, um, not being carried to the brain. So they will not do anything. And some of the cheaper supplements actually are full of the ALA. So you want EPA and DHA. I think it's a really important point that, isn't it? And particularly, I think, for, you know, a lot of people are choosing to have vegan diets these days. Yeah, that's um, tricky. Yeah. Yes, yes. Well, because... A lot of the, mm -hmm. those sources of omega-3 yeah. contain ALA. Yeah, exactly. And you're saying that the brain can't use ALA, is that right? So you can you can derive from ALA, you can make EPA and DHA, but we are super inefficient. We are very inefficient. So you would have to eat uh, kilos of ALA to make one milligram of EPA or DHA. So whereas you can have, you know, the EPA or DHA you need by eating 80 gram of salmon, for example. Yeah. So, which is, you know, but I understand for people who are vegetarian and vegan, you have to go other ways. And I think there are some new products that are algaes yeah. Uh, that are actually containing uh, EPA and DHA. Yeah, I read that as well, so actually. So that's, that's one way uh, vegan and vegetarian people, you know, can get their proper amount of omega-3 fatty acids uh, that are relevant to uh, brain health. Yeah. And I think, you know, any brain researcher who I've had on this podcast, including uh, Dr. Lisa Mosconi, who wrote the book Brain Foods, you know, most of them, including yourself, are probably sort of would recommend fatty fish yeah. um, mm -hmm. because of the science of the research and, and showing what it can do for our brain. Mm -hmm. But as you say, you know, we've got to be very respectful of people who are yeah. choosing not to do that. Absolutely. And what are those other methods yeah. mm -hmm. where they can also get some of those benefits off the yeah. omega-3s? Yeah, yeah. um, I just want to go back to, to exercise for a minute yeah. because we mentioned, well, you mentioned running mm -hmm. as specifically being able to increase rates of neurogenesis. Do we know what 
other forms of exercise can do or is it specific to running or do we not know yet we don't know yet i think i think it would be really an interesting question uh you know, to see what we know from my study is that if you let them freely running, you will have an increased neurogenesis. However, if you force them to run, you will not see it. So there is some kind of um, things we have to be aware from rodent study. In human, we don't know if it's going to be the same, but, you know, likely, is that probably there is an idea of uh, maybe, you know, exercising with pleasure or really <laughs> wanted to exercise, yeah. you know, maybe to have the full benefit. Because if you force the mice, you know, to run uh, as opposed to just let them run when they want, then you don't see such an effect. So there is probably, you know, to be honest, some kind of, you know, mitigating uh, effect with, you know, are you forced to exercise or do you want to exercise? So we have to be aware of that. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. And I, I guess, yeah, we are speculating on humans, but it it would seem reasonable to recommend to people to do the form of exercise that appeals to them. Because A, they're more likely to stick to it yes. anyway. But yeah, it you know, if, if you're someone who hates running, yeah, you've heard this podcast and said, oh, you know, this this expert in neurogenesis says that running is going to increase the growth of my nerve cells. Well, who wouldn't want that? So mm -hmm. they're going to start going running every day, but maybe they're going to hate it as they're doing it. I guess this is raising questions, which hopefully a research paper will answer at some point. Yeah, I know. Maybe the benefit will be limited. I, I mean, from extrapolating from the more study, I think if people are forced to do an exercise they don't like, I don't think they will have as a great benefit. So I think, yes, I mean, I am a runner, so I like running, so it's convenient for me. But one of my, you know, I mean, my kids are still young, but I encourage them, you know, to have a healthy lifestyle. At one point, they were into running and now they hate it. So I'm not going to force them to run because I can see that, you know, it makes them miserable. But they found other ways to, uh, to enjoy, you know, namely running after a ball, which is still running, but that's a different concept. And I know talking to a lot of people who really do not like running, but actually they do a lot of running without knowing it. You know, when you play, you know, any sports ball, you run after a ball. Of course. So I think we shouldn't generalize it has to be running on the road or on a treadmill and, you know, do nothing else. No, I mean, as long as you increase for me, potentially, you know, it's all about increasing the blood flow to the brain, uh, very likely. So, you know, any type of exercise where you are going to achieve that should be beneficial. When I was researching um, your work online, uh, there's two things that also came up that we've not spoken about today. One of them is soft food. Oh, yeah. And I found that really interesting. Mm -hmm. um, could, you, could, you, could you explain a little bit about how soft food might impact neurogenesis? Yeah, so this comes from uh, loads of Japanese groups. So all this research has been done in Japan uh, because I think they are very uh, interested in food textures. Um, and then what they have uh, started to show, again, these are rodent studies, is that if you give uh, soft food to the mice, so as opposed to you are describing the chow, so which is crunchy, so it's like little what you give maybe sometimes to your cat, so this is what we give to the rodent, so it's crunchy and they have to chew on it. Uh, and then they decided, okay, let's see uh, if we put that, you know, mash it, put it in water. So it's kind of a liquid diet. So it's amazing. Uh, the paper show that if you put a mice, you know, from their normal crunchy uh, food to a liquid diet, the neurogenesis rate goes down like of 30% which is huge. Uh, and then they said, okay, you know, you know, wh what could that be? So they did a bit some kind of maybe more barbaric experiment where they remove the teeth of the mice, you know, and still give them the, the, the hard food somehow or softer food, but they couldn't chew. Uh, really. Uh, so uh, the idea is that, you know, probably chewing is or mastication is what will induce neurogenesis. So now there are different hypotheses. It could be that indeed, again, we increase the blood flow to the brain or we have some direct, we have some direct nerve cells that actually, you know, could be uh, responsible. So again, it looks like, you know, it's not just food content uh, or 
calorie intake, uh, but also food texture might have an impact on neurogenesis. And we think it's important. I, you know, it might sound uh, kind of a funny topic, like, oh, food texture, come on, something and say, no, but think about people uh, that are getting older. Uh, often they will be given in retirement, they just get soup because, yeah, you puree, know. Puree, soft yeah, food. Exactly, because maybe indeed they have some dental problems. So maintaining a healthy, you know, uh, teeth is very important for the old age because you will be able to continue chewing. Uh, this is blowing my mind, Sandrine. It really is because it's it's the more you you look at the body, it, the more you see how everything is connected. You can't even just look at necessarily the food in isolation. It's how much of that food. It's when you eat that food. It's what's the texture of that food, um, and you know we know oral health is. It's critical for systemic health. We know that um, you know having gum disease will increase your rates of cardiovascular disease and yep. stroke. Yep. So we sort of know that, don't yep. we, from the science that actually yep. the health of the mouth, the health of the teeth is important for the health of the rest of your body. Mm-hmm. And it's just, you know, all these little studies that help teasing out some or, or, you know, helping us to hypothesize various mechanisms by which that might might be playing out. It's, it's it really, I find it so fascinating, mm-hmm. really, mm-hmm. really interesting. Okay, so um, a, a lot of this stuff is the sort of thing, I guess, that 100, 200 years ago, people would be eating um, sort of real food that required mastication to chew it. And, and I guess now we've got a tendency, I'm sort of thinking as I go through this, but we, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're in juice culture and smoothie culture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, could, could there be a potential disadvantage from you know, slurping our food down without having to chew it i mean yeah. you know who knows I, I i mean yeah exactly who knows i mean i think you know if you eat the least processed food i think that's the best way to to translate that basically if yeah. you don't process the food uh like we have an image of an apple here in front of us so instead of to drink apple juice you know or even you know like if you you know have one of these fancy food processor where you get the whole apple but you know in a smooth or you know uh drinkable um uh, fresh uh, juice. Uh, what's the advantage of having eating a raw apple as opposed to an apple juice? Well, first, it will take you much longer to eat it, so you probably will feel satiated, you know, uh, as opposed to just ducking down, you know, your juice. Then, if you drink juice, you lose all the fibers, right? And then now we can add, if we want, you know, to to make this. Uh, this argument a little bit more compelling of of mastication and chewing. Well, I mean, the apple is crunchy and you will chew on it and you will eat it as opposed to drink it. So I think, uh, you know, if if we want to summarize the whole thing and and give, you know, an easy tip is like, don't eat your food too processed. And if you do that, you probably will do quite well. Yeah, I totally Um, agree. I'm actually staring at my apple juice there in the corner now, <laughs> Sorry, and I might yeah, I might not yeah. have it anymore. But it's cold uh, pressed, so <laughs> you have the you have the fibers at least in there. I but hope you so. will you will drink it much faster than if you would eat an apple, no right? No question. So and you that's, can't, that's you the thing. You know how many how many apples are in there? Three, four apples, yeah, maybe. Possibly. You, it's mm-hmm. very, it's pretty hard to eat yeah. three or four apples yeah, in a row. Exactly. It's pretty hard to do yeah. that. The final thing we've not discussed, which I think is of critical importance, is what does sex do to neurogenesis? Oh, yeah, okay. That's from well, your TED yeah, talk. Yeah, yeah, it is in the TED talk. So um, this, is, um, this is a study from, uh, or some studies from Elizabeth Gould, where, you know, and, and when I was doing my postdoc uh, in the US, I was with another uh, postdoc, and we always thought about doing this experiment. We should measure neurogenesis, you know, after mating of the rodent. And we never found the time to do it because we thought, surely it's, you know, it's going to be have a good effect but then some other people did it uh, and then yeah I mean either for male and female so uh, intercourse will increase neurogenesis wow. so again you can say you know why and how we you you know um you know again you could think about you know is it a form of exercise you know yeah maybe not for rodent though because they're much faster uh but uh but for human definitely and then again you have you know this idea of um you know maybe having a good time <laughs> potentially yeah. so yeah so these are rodent study we can't say for sure you know this is happening in human. no one did a human study uh, where they measure cognition uh you know with people having intercourse and not having intercourse but you know somewhere to it, go with the research maybe. but it would be probably hard to get funding for that i i, I suspect yeah yeah absolutely well you know, super fascinating discussion um Sandri, what i often do with um 
I interview a whole wide variety of guests on this podcast. Not everyone is a scientific researcher, Mm -hmm. but I'm always intrigued for those high-level researchers who come in and speak to me. Have you changed anything in your own lifestyle since you started doing your research? Yeah, good question. So um, I was already a a convinced runner. So, you know, I'm I'm just happy to, you know, uh, you know, have another reason to say, well, you know, at least it's good for my brain. Um, And uh, if I'm not training for a race, you know, I'm saying it's just, you know, a good, healthy, you know, things to keep going. Um, And then definitely the intermittent fasting. So I definitely started to do uh, intermittent fasting uh, you know, as soon as we got, you know, some of the mouse study out. So I'm indeed not, you know, asking participants to do things I wouldn't do myself. So an internal fasting is definitely one of them. Uh, the PhD student who is, you know, on the project, she's doing intermittent fasting herself, for example. And some people that were in my lab before were very much into calorie restriction, you know, after they, they saw the data. So, um, and then we try to have a healthy, lifestyle as well at home you know my kids know you know what's good and what's bad my kids do as well actually so (laughs) it is like um i hope they don't rebel when they get older and go i'm sick of all this healthy living that daddy keeps talking to us about yeah yeah no no that's that's the danger so we try to apply it at home with exactly a little bit you know of uh of flexibility indeed because you don't want to alienate them so uh it's tricky though isn't it as a parent no Um, it is yeah yeah because you want to do the best for them and then you know once in a of course yeah yeah absolutely well no i think it's so telling what what researchers do and you know what research compels them to Mm -hmm. change and i think you know some intermittent fasting is probably a really good tip for people who who are listening yeah yeah. and then i mean it's not that hard to do um and usually i do that i will never do that on the weekend because this is where you know maybe i'm with friends or family and it would be really hard to do intermittent fasting on the weekend some people do is, when he, is it not easier at work when you're busy yeah, exactly. and you're actually you're yeah, yeah, yeah. almost too busy to eat? Exactly. So at work, it's very easy. Very, very easy to do at work. Yeah, Absolutely. I think that's yeah. a great tip. Yeah. Well, Sandri, look, what I, you know, what I try and do right at the end is to leave people with a bit of positivity. Yeah. And the whole point of this Feel Better, Live More podcast is to inspire people mm-hmm. to become the architects of their own health. And I think the conversation today has shown just what a healthy lifestyle can do for our brain health and you know potentially the growth well not potentially the growth of new mm-hmm, nerve cells mm-hmm. can can you leave the listener with a few top tips i mean it's probably you probably already mentioned them but maybe four mm-hmm. top tips for what they might be able to do to improve the health of their brain yeah i mean i think the number one good news and that some people were not aware of is that you can still make new neurons in your you know adult brain so nothing is lost uh that these new neurons have a functional uh, impact on learning memory and your mood wow. and this is why you know uh trying to live the best you can to you know keep the neurogenesis going is important and then the way People can do that is that, you know, uh, you know, trying to sleep well and, you know, limit stress, but sometimes it is difficult. So if you cannot limit stress, can you balance it out with maybe a good diet, you know, eat, you know, lots of fruit, vegetable, fish, if you, you know, are not vegan or, you know, uh, you know, or vegetarian. Um, and then finally try to exercise, do something you like. Yeah. Brilliant tip. Sandri, thank you. Thank you. Um, are you on social media? I haven't noticed a huge presence, and maybe because you're too busy actually doing real research that we can all apply yeah. in our lives. Yeah. Um, but for people who are listening to this who, who might want to connect with you or let you know what they thought of our conversation today, what, uh, I mean, do you, you know, can you, can you sort of point people as to where they can find you? So, yeah, I mean, on Twitter. Uh, uh, Twitter What's your handle? It, it is uh, Tudrin, so T H U R I N E at Tudrin. So, but if we search Sandrine Turin, we will find, find that on Twitter. And I will put links oh, to, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah. this Great. and your TED Talk and some of yeah. the other articles you've and done. And then we have a lab webpage, but this is linked, I think, to the Twitter account yeah. and to the TED Talk probably. So, so yeah. for, for each episode, I, I create a show notes page on my website and I'll make sure there are links to your lab, there are links to your Twitter and some of the articles that you've done as well. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today and good luck with all your research. Thank you. Thank you. That concludes today's episode of the Feel Better, Live More podcast. I found that conversation super inspiring and I hope you did too. 
I think it's amazing that the more we learn about the body and the brain, the more we understand the critical importance of the lifestyle choices that we make on a daily basis. As I wrote in my very first book, The Four Pillar Plan, consciously change your lifestyle and you will unconsciously change your biology. That phrase is very apt in the context of today's episode and brain health. As always, do let Sandrine and I know on social media what you thought of today's episode and what small changes it has inspired you to make in your lifestyle. You can see everything that we talked about, including links to more of Sandrine's work, her articles, and her TED Talk on the show notes page, which for this week is at drchatterjee.com forward slash Sandrine, which is S-A-N-D-R-I-N-E. As we discussed on today's show, chronic stress can have damaging effects on the brain in the short term, as well as the long term. My brand new book, The Stress Solution, really dives into this topic so that you can understand where stress lives in the modern world and more importantly, what you can do about it. The book is full of simple and accessible strategies that you can apply in your own life to reduce your stress levels so that you can live a happier and calmer life. Since the book came out just over one week ago, the response has been phenomenal. So far in the first week of release, there are an incredible 70 reviews on Amazon. All of them have been five-star. Thank you to all of you who have already bought a copy. You have helped send the book to number one in all books, which means that I can get this information out to so many more people. If you haven't got a copy yet, you can pick one up right now in paperback or in the audiobook, which I am narrating. All of the international book links for The Stress Solution are available at drchatterjee.com forward slash book. If you do enjoy my weekly podcasts, one of the best ways that you can support them is by leaving a review on whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. You can also help me spread the word by taking a screenshot right now and sharing this episode with your friends and family on your social media channels. Of course, you can always do it the good old fashioned way and simply tell your friends about the show. Your support is very much appreciated. That's it for today. I hope you have a fabulous week. Make sure you have pressed subscribe and I'll be back next week with my latest conversation. Remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle change is always worth it because when you feel better, you live more. I'll see you next time.